Welcome to the Flying Baton, the magical land of beginning band. Coming to you from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, your host, Charlie Nesmith. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We're taking a break from talking about pandemic-related topics to bring you a pedagogical episode on one of the most underrated band instruments. Coming soon, we have some great interviews lined up, including some band directors turned composers. Please give us a follow on your podcast app of choice or visit theflyingbaton.com. This week's pick is Cyclone by Michael Orr, published by MusicWorks. Mike is a recently retired middle school band director who spent three decades in the classroom in Chesapeake, Virginia, so he knows how to write for middle school band. This programmatic work depicts one of nature's most powerful forces. It starts out slow and beautiful, and then the marimba and low winds take us in towards the impending storm. Instead of a snare drum, he's chosen to use toms as the primary percussion voice. The mallet players also need to be really solid because they have a crucial role in every transition. There is a swirling round in the band, followed by a really powerful emotional buildup. Just when you think the tension is resolved, the storm strikes again, and the piece ends on a fast, if inquisitive, finish.
This piece is in the key of D minor, so there are a ton of concert E naturals, which is a great thing for young band to work on. Please note that in the first clarinet part, they have a lot of very quick transitions between A, B, and C at quarter note equals 144. You need to have at least one strong mallet player, preferably two, because they have such a critical role in every transition in the piece. Like many pieces of music nowadays, this is now available as a flex band arrangement as well. To buy this piece or listen to it in its entirety, check out the show notes or visit theflyingbaton.com. Natalie Law is an active bassoonist and educator based in the Lansing, Michigan area. As an orchestral musician, she has most recently performed with the Lansing Symphony, the Grand Rapids Symphony, and the West Michigan Symphony. Natalie is a founding member of the Lansing-based woodwind quintet Pure Winds, which have recently been named a finalist for the American Prize and will soon be releasing an album under the Orpheus Classical Music label. She has toured the United States as a performing artist and clinician at numerous institutions and at conferences such as the Midwest Band Clinic and the International Double Reed Society Conference. Natalie is currently pursuing her doctorate in musical arts degree as a graduate teaching assistant at Michigan State University. She is the founder of buildingabassoonist.com, a YouTube channel which has a lot of great resources for educators who may not be bassoon specialists. Welcome, Natalie, to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We really appreciate you coming to talk to us about some bassoon today. I've, I've been wanting to do an episode on the bassoon for a while, so I'm very, very excited to talk about this with you today. So if you could preach one thing on the mountaintop to band directors everywhere that they should know about the bassoon, what would it be? All right. So the one thing that I want to preach from the mountaintops is that any student can play the bassoon. The reason that I say that is because historically a lot of band directors and some bassoon students feel like the bassoon is only for students who are the go-getters or the straight-A students or the the best students in band, first-chair students. And I just want to emphasize that with the right resources and support that any student can play the bassoon. And it may even be the, the students who are you know, struggling in other ways that when they, they get to the bassoon, they're great. So I think having a mentality that any student, given the right resources, can play the bassoon is really helpful and positive and is going to help bring more bassoonists into the world. Do you have any particular accommodations that that maybe fall under that, like some something that might be an issue that you say, oh, well, you can accommodate that this way so that person can still be able to play the bassoon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So probably the biggest issue that often comes up with young bassoonists, especially young middle schoolers, is the size. The bassoon is a large, unwieldy instrument that is, it's difficult to figure out. And sometimes students have problems reaching all the way around the bassoon. For example, when they're like the the three tone holes on the front of the bassoon, when they put their fingers on that, and then they reach around, they can't quite reach the whisper key with their left thumb. And that is a tricky situation to be in. But there are ways that you can kind of extend the whisper key a little bit so that they can reach with their thumb. You can jerry-rig some sort of taped something that kind of extends the button just a little bit so they can reach it. I've even seen and heard of students who just start playing the bassoon and they learn the fingerings and they know that eventually when they grow that they have to they have to use the whisper key, but they just don't reach it. And I tell all my students, my private students, the whisper key is one of the most important keys on the bassoon, but it's not absolutely necessary if a student can't quite reach it. 
Another issue with size is sometimes students are so small and so light that they can't actually hold the weight of the bassoon up on the seat strap when they sit down and the, and the bassoon just slides down because they're not heavy enough. And the way that I work around that is that I have them still use the seat strap as normal. And I also have them usually use either a neck strap or a harness that kind of clicks into the ring on the bassoon. And that way they're practicing with the seat strap, but they also have the extra support on their their neck or their upper body that kind of holds the bassoon up. So really the biggest, again, the, the biggest barrier I think sometimes is the size of the student. But Again, there are accommodations, like you said, that that we can work around that, again, any student can play bassoon given the right resources and support. So I had a student playing uh, bassoon a few years ago, and she just had very small hands. And one of our bassoons had, is it called plateau keys installed? Yeah. So she had it for her, uh, particularly her left hand ring finger. So she could play that bassoon just fine. But if she used another one that didn't have that, she could not get whole coverage. Is that something that someone could order for about any brand of bassoon or have installed? I believe you can on on pretty much any of the kind of brands that are normally used on bassoons. You can install a plateau key, have a repair shop do that. I'm not going to speak for all because there's a lot of off brands and things like that. And I haven't necessarily checked them all out. But yeah, the plateau key is something that you'd have to send it to a repair shop that could work on the bassoon, but it's something that can pretty easily be added, especially if it's the one thing that's holding the student back from playing the bassoon in general. So yes, that's another accommodation. And actually when I'm asked what what things to consider or what bassoons to purchase for programs, I I pretty much tell all middle school band directors it's a it's a good idea to have at least one bassoon that has a platoki on it just just as a set standard. And I played on a bassoon in high school that had a platoki on it just because that's all that my school had. And it wasn't until I got my own bassoon that I that I stretched that third finger. And it took a lot of practice to get it, but it wasn't a detriment to my my playing. It wasn't a huge jump for me. So yeah, I just recommend just get the key on there and then it's there for any student who might need it. Let's talk about reeds for a second. So how important is it that beginners are playing on a handmade reed versus like a, a factory produced reed? Pretty darn important. I I really recommend in any, if you can at all possible, get a handmade bassoon reed, do it, even with very beginners, because I'm a, an instructor at a couple middle schools here in Michigan. And when I go in and work with students, so I don't see them enough. So they kind of get their own reeds. But when I see them play on those kind of factory made reeds, we run into a lot of issues because I have my tools there and I can adjust reeds with my equipment, but there's only so much I can do if like the the baseline quality of the reed is not there. So I run into problems with they're playing the right fingerings, they got the right embouchure, like everything's set up, but they're like a whole tone or a whole step flat on everything. And it's just the reed. It's just, it's too long or it's too thick or the, the, the cane is just really poor quality. So yes. And there are a lot of different types of handmade reeds out there. I mean, there's all sorts of places online that you can buy them from. A lot of different bassoonists sell their own reeds. And, but even though, even though there's a lot of differences and it may feel a little bit overwhelming, pretty much anytime you buy from a real bassoonist, you're going to be in, in better luck than from a store-bought kind of factory-made reed, like you said. 
if someone really doesn't have another choice or they really want to get some factory-made reads, are there some that you found to be at least better than average that you could recommend? Better than average. Or at least not terrible, (laughs) I guess. I was trying to word that like very politically correct. Reads that will suffice for a beginner, you know? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I, out of the reads that I have come across, I do think that the Jones reads are probably best in terms of kind of that factory made style. Jones, I believe, has kind of several levels of reads. They they have kind of like your beginner basic read. And I believe they have kind of like an artist model read or like a little bit higher level that it's still made by them, but it's definitely a step. It's had a little bit more care put into it. So if you can invest in kind of that little bit higher level, even though it's still from like a a bigger company like that, I, I think that's a step up. But yeah, Jones reads, I think, are the probably the go-to if you, if you have no other choice. Have you experimented at all with any synthetic reads? I have played on Legere reads. I, I don't play them regularly, but I've tried them out. And I've been pretty impressed, actually, with how they, how they play, how they sound. I don't... There are ways to actually adjust Legere reads. And I haven't gone through that process of finding a Legere read that works for me. So, But it, it is an option for students if you wanted to get that level of synthetic read. The Legere reads are, I haven't looked at the price recently, but I think well over $100 for bassoon reads each. So I don't think it's great for a band program because if if it breaks, then, well, that's that's a big expense out the out the window. But... They, they do last longer. So I think still to this day and this this time, cane reads for bassoon are generally the norm, are still generally the, the go-to. But I think I think synthetic reads are they're coming up. Maybe in the coming years, they'll become more widespread. Well, I know with cane oboe reads, a lot of times if you get the factory bought ones, the, uh, the opening will be way too closed or way too open, and you need to get it wet and kind of adjust that very carefully to get it into an optimum position. Do you see right. things to like things like that for bassoon reads as well? Yeah, definitely. And and for band programs in particular, as as a band instructor, like obviously you're not going to have access to a whole array of read making equipment that a bassoonist would. I would never expect that. But you can get a lot done with a small pair of pliers and a piece of 400 grit sandpaper. So in on the bassoon, unlike the oboe, we have wires on our reeds. And the wires are nice because if you make a mistake, if you go too far with the wires, you can always undo what you did. You can always kind of put them back in the position. It's not the same as where if you're taking sandpaper or even if you had a knife and you were trying to take cane off, though I wouldn't recommend that. Once you take the cane off, you can't put it back on, right? So, but with the wires, you can do a lot. So obviously anytime that you're trying to make any adjustment on the reed, have it soaked so that you're not going to crack it. For So the top wire on a bassoon reed, the, the, the wire that is closest to the the, the blades, the soft cane, the top wire, the first wire, that controls the tip opening of the reed. So if you were to take a pair of pliers and squeeze gently from top to bottom on, directly on that first wire, you should see the tip opening of the reed close down a little bit. And if the tip opening closes a little bit, that makes the reed 
less resistant, easier to play. If you go too far and totally close off the tip of the reed, which it's hard to do if you're going, if you're being gentle, then you can always squeeze the wire, that same wire from side to side, and that will open the tip up so that it becomes a little bit more resistant. So if a reed was maybe too free blowing, like there has to be some point of resistance, right? So if it's, if it's too, too easy to make sound on the bassoon, you could try creating a little bit of resistance by opening the tip up. And there's no really universal thing that I f- necessarily find. I think all, re- all, unfortunately, all reeds are different. Like all climates are different. Reed will be great one day and junk the next day. There's just so many factors. I can't give you necessarily a universal approach, but, but you can kind of play around with that resistance in the tip. And then with sandpaper, you can actually, and I'm, I'm going to actually put a video out on my YouTube that actually shows this exact thing. You can actually put the reed at a basically a 45 degree angle to the sandpaper, like on a table. And if you kind of pull it back on the sandpaper, pull the reed back on the sandpaper, it can take a little bit of actual cane at wood out of the tip. And that also makes the reed less resistant. So in sandpaper, you can't like you can't take that much off at any given time. So is that, are those, did those translate well to a, to a band director speak? Yeah, I think it's, it's similar to, um, so on clarinet, for example, if someone's using a really soft reed, they tend to play very flat and mm-hmm. loud, but you can take the reed and, and push it upwards a little bit on the mouthpiece. So where mm-hmm. instead of being flush with the tip of the mouthpiece, it's sticking up just a little bit. And right. that and that puts the vibrating surface on a thicker part of the reed, so it kind of artificially mm. makes it a slightly harder reed, like a reed that's higher in in number. All so right. that is is kind of a hack I use sometimes if 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 I think a kid's got a reed that's just way too soft. So it sounds sounds pretty similar to that. Are there any resources yeah. that you could recommend for band directors to do some basic adjustments of reeds? With reed making, off the top of my head, I don't know of any. It's it's one of my personal goals to actually create some videos and, and other types of resources for band directors to be able to do those quick adjustments or even for students to do those quick adjustments because they may they may be able to do that at home if they're maybe a little bit older student. Yeah, off the top of my head I don't know of any, but I, I'm hoping to put some out in the future that will help students maybe on my YouTube channel or somewhere else. Yeah, I think if you did like a a crash course for band directors slash younger students, here's some Mm -hmm. easy adjustments that you could safely make versus getting out the shaving knife. And oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that would be that'd be very popular and very useful. I would definitely if you do make one of those, by all means, we can put it on our website, but you can also post it on the band director Facebook group for middle school directors is very active. They would welcome any sort of information on adjusting reads. Absolutely. Love it. I'm that's now it's on my to-do list. Excellent. All right. Excellent. You could put you could put me in the credits. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I, I will. I will. <laughs> um well as far as the cane reads, do you advocate for your students to rotate them throughout a rehearsal? So if they're sitting in a 90-minute rehearsal, is it okay to use the same read or should they be like switching every so many minutes? I it's okay to use the same read throughout one rehearsal. And I know maybe that differs a little bit from between bassoon and oboe, or maybe it doesn't. I'm I'm actually not sure. I'm not an expert in oboe, but and and that's where sometimes some confusions lie is because oboe and bassoon were both double reads, but actually our reads are quite different and react differently or made differently. So for bassoon reads, because 
they are a little bit, well, they are longer, thicker, bigger than oboe reeds. They generally last longer. They're generally a little bit more durable. There's a little bit more margin of error. We don't love to see the, the corners chipped off of the reeds, but we can make it work if we really have to. So I definitely recommend students to have at least three reeds, if at all possible, at all times that they can go to. And I I think it's safe to rotate maybe one a day or so. So one reed one day, the next band rehearsal, band class, or the next day you play, use another reed. And reeds actually last a lot longer if you can rotate them like that. So no, you don't need to necessarily rotate them within the same rehearsal, but definitely on kind of a broader basis, rotating them, they will last much longer that way. Gotcha. Let's talk about a crowing for a second. So I know on oboe, they'll put their lips all the way down to the string and they're blowing and they get that crazy sound and they're listening for like three distinct octaves of sound. Is there a bassoon reed equivalent to that or do you guys go about that in a different manner? Yeah, it's crowing on a bassoon reed is in it, it does tell you a lot about the reed. The thing with crowing, and I think bassoonist to bassoonist, maybe we differ a little bit on this. I don't necessarily think that it's important for especially young students, beginners, middle schoolers, to really be worried about crowing their reed or figuring out the the crow tells you a number of things. It tells you what the response is like on the reed. It tells you where the pitch is going to be sitting on the reed. It tells you, like like I can tell on my reeds, if a, note, if a reed is going to be a good low note reed or if it's going to be a good high note reed because it's, you know, it's getting more lows in the crow versus more highs. Like that kind of, you know, tells me. But yeah, I do want a good mix. I do want kind of that low, mid, high, like you were, were mentioning. That's usually a good all around reed. But those those are pretty advanced concepts, I think, for especially for students. Really, I wouldn't be worried about crowing reads or teaching students what that means until maybe they're in high school. Maybe they're working with a private teacher. They're, they're probably talking about that. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely important. It tells you a lot about the reads, but it's not necessarily the thing band directors and students need to focus on first. So moving on to the embouchure, when you're instructing kids from the very beginning how they're supposed to form their lips. What are some useful strategies or visualizations or techniques you get them to get their lips to the right place and and let them know which muscles they should be using? Yeah, and I I love this question. I'm ready for it because my background is in music education. I, I have a little bit of six through 12 band teaching experience. And one of the hardest things that I found teaching was just remembering all the little like nuanced differences in between embouchures and and then there's fingerings and all these things. And so it seems like a lot of instruments use like talk about the corners of your mouth being pulled in and have some similarities. And I think there are similarities from instrument to instrument. So what I thought would be helpful was to break down the bassoon embouchure into a three-step process. So, and I, I haven't heard this anywhere else. This is just my own this is how I've done it and I find it to be helpful is the first step number one is to create a whistling face. And what that does is it brings your lips forward and it brings them in. And and, and that's kind of the ideal position for a bassoon embouchure. Step number two is to roll your bottom lip slightly over your bottom teeth and not, not, not so much that it's that you can't see any red of the lips, but just enough to create a cushion for the reed. And on the bassoon, 
we the the bottom lip functions as a cushion for the reed and the top lip functions more as just kind of a cover for the reed. You're not really putting a lot of pressure on the top lip. It's more the bottom lip is just kind of a cushion and most of the pressure or tension is is from the corners of the lips. Okay, so that's step number two. And then step number three is to create an overbite. And this is the most bassoon embouchure thing is I don't I don't think there's any other instrument that uses an overbite, but maybe it's out there. Or maybe not to not to our extent. But so if you were to look at the bassoon embouchure from the side, the top lip should be slightly in front of the bottom lip. Somewhere two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way up the reed, the top lip should sit, um, not touching the first wire. So if the student can feel the first wire of the reed, they're too far up. They're going to get too much of a harsh, brittle sound, right? But you don't want to be too far off because they won't have as much control. So yeah, I think that three-step process. So one, whistling face, Two, roll your bottom lip slightly over your bottom teeth. And three, create an overbite. I think it's an easy way to remember for bassoons specifically, like what you're supposed to do. And with the overbite in particular, that kind of changes from student to student because we all have different musculature. And it's for some students, the overbite is really easy because they have more of a natural overbite. And for some students, it's really difficult to even visualize what that even means. So I... I never push a student too far. If they can't quite get that overbite right away, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable or be like really trying to overcompensate. So if they can't get the overbite right away, I kind of work on it over time. Try to just every time I work with them, try to get them to do more of that overbite. So if a student's not getting it, don't force it. But eventually you want to try and gently push them in that direction if possible. Yeah, I went to a uh, bassoon clinic at Midwest and this was a couple couple years ago, two or three years ago. And they had four people playing. And I noticed they all had what I can only describe as the bassoon face when yeah, they played. Yeah. Because it did look like they all had this overbite situation. But only when they were playing, not when they were talking. And, right. And that got me thinking, like, man, is there is there some some acoustical reason why that is beneficial? Yeah. You know, and I found myself... As I was learning the bassoon, why why do we do this? I don't. I guess I don't know the the specific acoustical reason for that. My my interpretation of the reason that why a lot of bassoonists play with an overbite embouchure is that it helps to create more space in the oral cavity. So you have kind of like by by reaching your top lip forward, you're maybe creating a little bit more of a longer passage, I guess, for the air to go through, or you're creating more space somehow, rather than being both your lips in the same like vertical position. I don't know if that's the, the, the correct answer or, or not. I've actually never been, been told exactly why, but yeah. And I find that if I try to play without an overbite versus when I try to play with an overbite, without the overbite, I don't feel like I can bring the pitch down as much. I can't, or I can't get quite in in the center of the note as much. So maybe that's just years of bassoon playing. I don't, I don't know. But yeah, it's a good question. It's a very bassoon specific thing is the overbite. And there, there are bassoonists out there that n- don't necessarily play with the overbite. I mean, it's not necessarily, every, it's not every bassoonist you're going to see that, or you're not going to see it to a huge extent, but it is pretty, majority of us do have kind of an overbite. And so, yeah. Well, I think that leads into a discussion of what you're doing with your embouchure in different ranges. So for saxophone mm-hmm. players, for example, a lot of saxophone players will say, my embouchure does not change no matter what register that I'm in. They might do different things with their tongue. 
But the Amateur itself, they're like, needs to stay the same all the time. I know some clarinet players do make a conscious adjustment with their jaw going into different registers. Mm-hmm. What about bassoon? Are there some like commonly accepted like embouchure adjustments you make depending on what range you're playing in? Yeah. So I'm going to talk about embouchure and I'm also going to talk about voicing or the internal space of our oral cavity because you, you can't really just talk about embouchure. And actually, so this kind of, this is related, but there are, there are basically four variables to controlling sound on the bassoon. At least this is the way that I think about it. So we have air velocity, we have air support, which is related to velocity, but not exactly the same thing. We have internal spacing or voicing, and we have embouchure. And of the four, embouchure is the thing that changes the least from note to note from register to register. So yes, the embouchure is shifting a little bit in your low register versus your high register, but it's not it's not the first thing we go to. So for example, if I want to play in the low register of the bassoon, maybe I want to play the lowest note on the bassoon, the low B flat, I, I will think about actually using probably the least amount of air support, which is, it's weird to say that, but actually for the low register of the bassoon, if you're using a lot of air support, the pitch is going to be sharp and you may not get good response. I'm also thinking, depending on what dynamic I'm playing, I might be playing, if I'm playing forte, I'm going to be using fast air velocity. If I'm playing piano, I'm going to be using slow air velocity. So that's that's the support versus velocity that I was talking about with air. As far as what you're doing with your mouth, basically, you have to create more space in the oral cavity at the at the opening of the throat, internal spacing. And I like to think about the the voicing on the bassoon as kind of an hourglass shape. So if you were to think about the range of the bassoon, the the bottom and well the, the bottom of the hourglass is actually a little bit bigger. So at the, the bottom of the bassoon, you have the largest part of the hourglass, right? And that's where you're going to be creating the most space, internal space in, in your mouth to be able to get the right pitch and the right tone. And then as you go up the register, you're getting into the kind of the middle of the hourglass shape. Mid-register, maybe middle of the bass clef staff up to the kind of the top of the bass clef staff. And then when you get into the high register, you're at the top of the hourglass shape, right? And you need more space. So that's kind of a way to think about internal spacing for registers. Lots of space on the bottom, don't need as much space in the middle. And then as you get into the high register, you do need more spacing. Um, Embouchure. So again, embouchure is this last thing that we're talking about because the other three are so important. Embouchure for low register, I, I think about, so we need to take in less read for the low register. We need to allow the read to vibrate at, at, at those notes. And in order to do that, we have to take in less read. And so you're kind of, you're at the, you have the least amount of read in your mouth for the low register. I would say low B flat, you have the lowest amount or the the least amount. And then gradually you're taking in maybe a little bit more read as you're going up the, up the scale. And so when I'm transitioning to the low register, I think about kind of pushing out with my lips a little bit, or you can even think about like literally with your hands pushing the bassoon a little bit away to be able to take in less read so that you can transition. Like if you're doing a slur from somewhere in the middle of the bass clef staff down to a low note, you, m- you might think about pushing the bassoon just slightly away or pushing out with your embouchure. And then you do kind of the opposite with a 
high register, you do have to move a little bit up the reed to get the right tone and the right pitch. So that was the very long-winded question or answer to your question. So no, that's that's great. Now it's good to hear because I think a lot of times band directors who don't play the bassoon, for example, if a kid is having trouble with one range or the other, I think it's very helpful for them to know some possible things for the student to try, especially mm -hmm. with with more read or less read and how that affects it. So I think that'd be very, very helpful. Absolutely. So when you're in the beginning stages of teaching someone how to play from scratch, do you think they should stay on just making sound on the read or the read and the vocal or get try to get them on the whole bassoon as quick as possible? What What approach would you take? Yeah. So the approach that I take with complete beginners is I start with just trying to teach them some of the basic com concepts with with just the read. So I am with with just the read before you even put the bassoon together, I am trying to get them to figure out how to get their embouchure in the right place. I'm trying to figure out how I'm trying to teach them how to articulate on the bassoon. It's a little bit easier when you don't have a bassoon in front of you. And I do an exercise where I, I have them try to go do 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 just I play that for I it's it's very high pitched because it's on the read and then they play it back for me. And the the common issue and this is related to air is that the students will go do 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 and stop their air and it's it's I find it always a really big hurdle to get them to have continuous air through through that. And I find that when you just have the read, it's easier to teach that idea so that they're never stopping their air. And to think about their air is just this constant thing and their tongue is just lightly interrupting that airstream. So sound isn't initiated from the tongue, it's initiated from the air. And the tongue is just separating that air gently. So and I, I'm trying to teach that concept with just the read. And you can do kind of the same thing by adding the vocal to it. So just the read on the vocal. You can do similar exercises. Obviously, it lowers the pitch then. So they're getting closer to the register of the bassoon a little bit. Same kind of idea. And yeah, I, you know, if I'm doing a first lesson with a student, they're so excited to play. So of course, by the end of the lesson, we're trying to get them on the bassoon simply just so they can figure it out a little bit. And the, the open F on the bassoon, the middle of the bass clef staff, just the whisper key, that's, that's probably the note to just teach them first. They can play that without having any fingers down. So that's, that's kind of how I get them from no bassoon to bassoon. Is there a starting note that you think is pedagogically really great to have them start on when they get the bassoon together? Yeah, so this this is this is where there's a huge gap in pedagogy between beginning band methods, concert band methods and beginning bassoon methods and approaches to bassoon. So if you look at pretty much any beginning bassoon method, they are teaching the notes C, D, E, and F on the bassoon, middle of the bass clef staff. And, and that, that, that makes sense for the bassoon because it's just, it's easy fingers. It, you don't have to worry about the right hand yet. It makes sense. Then you learn that all the other fingerings on the bassoon, especially in the high register, don't make sense. So it makes sense for a small amount of time. But then when you get to band books, the students have to know B flat and E flat because band is B flat major to start with, right? So an E flat, both of those notes are 
particularly difficult for a beginner, especially the E flat. Uh huh. Because so, they're lifting. Yes. The, is it the ring finger, right? That's like sticking up, playing. It? Yeah, it's the forked fingering in their left hand. Yeah, that's it's and, and it's just that's kind of a wobbly, unstable note on the bassoon in general. You can stabilize it by adding fingers in the right hand, and yeah, it's just a difficult. And, and B flat is difficult because you're you're great at C and then you have to add three fingers in your left or your right hand to get to, to the B flat. So it, it's just difficult. And and that's 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 where I'm at is trying to create resources where the students are learning B flat and E flat earlier on. So right from the beginning, because if you if you give a student a typical beginning bassoon method book, they they aren't going to get to the notes that they need to know for band until well into the book, which makes sense for bassoon, of course, but it's it's difficult for young students in band. And I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of students struggle at first or sometimes even quit the bassoon, go back to their whatever their instrument was before, because it's just it doesn't it doesn't line up. So yeah, from a private teacher perspective, the C D E F is kind of the notes that I teach from the beginning. If I'm working with a student in band, which is 95% of the time, I definitely am trying to just like troubleshoot those two notes, B flat and E flat from the beginning. So that, cause I know they're going to struggle with those. So just because of the fingering and the voicing and that sort of thing. So, yeah. You know, what's interesting is French horns, right? So like most beginning methods of, of band, they will have the French horns playing a fourth lower than everybody else. So, mm. which puts them in you know the key of concert F because everyone else is in the key of concert B flat, right? So on the on their instruments that that the range is more comfortable for the embouchure, they're not worried about partials so much. I'm wondering mm. if for a bassoon, I mean, I, it would probably sound really muddy in a full band, but if they could start in a different key, would it be helpful if if bassoons were in the key of F when everyone else was in the key of B flat? Yeah, an F major is a a pretty nice key on the bassoon because if it, it sits well, it's generally most of the notes are pretty in tune, pretty easy fingerings. You don't get up to the half hole G at the top of the bass clef staff. You don't get up to there. That's a real struggle. Yeah, F major is a great key for bassoon students. So yeah, if there was a way to incorporate that, the the students in F major before they transition to B flat, definitely that would be a lot, lot easier, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I have a couple of questions I think you've answered already. Okay. So I'm going to skip those. Things like, what are you looking for in a beginning bassoon student? I think you probably <laughs> you've covered that pretty well, as well as the challenges. I, yeah. Well, and and I don't know if this should go on the, the the final product, but I don't. Did you hear the debacle of the TMEA bassoon guy who gave a conference? I think it was last week at TMEA, and then the conference had to get deleted because. He basically said that the best students to play bassoon, like things to consider are like the income of their family. Do they live in a house or an apartment? Like, do they move a lot? Like, are they smart in math and science? And basically saying that like really only privileged students, white privileged students should play the bassoon. So I just really want to emphasize, as I think that's kind of a lazy way to think that only if they have a certain amount of intelligence or privilege that they should play. There's already enough barriers with bassoon. I think anybody, if a student wants to play, they should play. Well, I I can speak to that a little bit because I teach in a school with very high amount of poverty. All of our kids get free breakfast, lunch, snack, all that sort of thing. And I have had the issue where a kid is playing bassoon and the parents can't afford 
breeds. But I found the best solution for that is to just have the band director use the school funds to buy them reads. Um, yeah. The tricky yeah. part is is getting the communication from the parents sometimes because a lot of times they don't want to admit that they can't afford $25 read, which is understandable. Oh, yeah. Like I have had the situation sometimes where I'd, I'd leave a voicemail for the parents and be like, hey, like so-and-so needs reads. Are you guys able to provide that? If not, let me know. And instead of calling me back and be like, yes, that would be great. Sometimes they're just like pull their kid out of band, you know, mm. and I've had that happen a couple of times, actually, for double reads in particular. Yeah. And that's really a shame because a lot of times their kids were amazing at their instrument and mm-hmm. love playing it. But sometimes income can be an embarrassing topic for a lot of people. And sometimes oh, yeah. instead of asking for help, some families would rather just avoid avoid having a conversation about it, which I understand. It just breaks my heart for some of those kids. But yeah, I, I definitely for a lot of my double read students, like I just I just buy reads and we yeah. put it in the band budget or if we need to fundraise, we fundraise. And that has the added advantage of we can make sure they're playing on really good read. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's um, great. Yeah. So, yeah, I do. I think it's very damaging for band directors to try to just say only your upper middle class kids should be playing double reads. Like if it's an affordability yeah. issue, let's make it affordable because some of right. my best sounding bassoon players have been kids that come from households that couldn't afford to buy reeds and they yeah. loved playing and they sounded great right so as, as many barriers as we can take down the better. exactly yeah for sure i think that's a great solution just having reeds on hand ready to go mm-hmm. okay one thing i did want to ask is in the orchestra i play in uh, i've noticed the bassoon players often like tapping a key very rapidly like, what is the oh, technique that yes. they are doing? Okay. That magical technique that they are doing is called flicking. So the way that I explain this, so flicking is an advanced technique. I didn't really learn it until late high school. Didn't really get good at it until college in my undergrad. And so flicking is, so on the bassoon, we don't have a, a register key or an octave key like a lot of other woodwinds do that help us play in the high register. And we actually kind of have the the opposite of a register key in the whisper key. The whisper key helps us with response and kind of the middle low registers and some notes in the in the upper register as well. But we have kind of an opposite register key. And so because we don't have a key that we can just simply press down and it helps us play some of those upper notes, we have to do this technique called flicking. And again, I wouldn't introduce this to a student until they've been playing at least for a while, like maybe, maybe a couple years, maybe a year if they're really, really want to get into bassoon. But it is a technique where if you, so for example, one note that you have to flick is the, the A at the top of the bass clef staff. So that note, so if you're looking at the wing joint on the bassoon, which is the right side of the bassoon, right underneath the vocal, the third key up from the whisper key. So the whisper key, then there's a key up from that. That's the C sharp key. Then there's an A key. uh, And that's the key that we use to flick the A. And what we have to do is we actually, when we want to play that note, we have to press that key down at the exact instant that we want to tongue it and play it. And that opens a vent a little further up on the wing joint. And that essentially allows that note to vent open so that it can play in that upper octave. Otherwise, the tendency is if you don't flick on that note, on that A, for example, you're likely to get the lower octave because it's the same fingering minus the whisper key. And more often, it is likely that that note is going to croak 
or not speak clearly right at right at the beginning of the notes. That's super common. So it's the A at the top of the bass clef staff, then the B flat, B natural, C, and then D are the notes that we flick on the bassoon. So anytime we come come across those notes, we generally have to flick them. You can also do a, a technique called venting, which is the same thing, except you're holding down the note through the the duration that you're holding it and that so that holds that vent open of whatever key you're pressing down and the problem with that you think well why don't i just hold the key down be like every other instrument and just have normal fingerings um hold the key down it throughout the duration of the note well that changes the timbre of the note it usually makes it like kind of more airy and maybe a little bit brighter sounding and it also affects the pitch as well so we we can't really just default to venting but for example if i'm in a passage where i have a lot of rapid articulation in those notes that are they have to flick i'm not repeatedly flicking my thumb each time i'm just holding the note the keys down for those notes so again the the third note or the third key up from the whisper key is for the A. And then the note, the key above that is for the B flat, B natural, and C. And then if they have, if the student has a key above that, the, the, the highest key on the, the wing joint, that would be used to flick the D. And the D is kind of, you don't necessarily need to flick it as much as the notes below it. So that is a very quick and not thorough explanation of what flicking and venting is. Again, I don't really introduce that to students until they've been playing for a while. I would say like late middle school would be the earliest that I would bring it up, but it kind of just depends student to student. So yeah, if if anybody has any more questions on that, just feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to to do a more in-depth tutorial. Well, and we have things like YouTube now as well, where kids can can learn things. I'm sure that like, say schools in texas where they have several band directors and all the kids get private lessons mm-hmm. they probably introduce it year one but schools where there's one director and they don't play bassoon they they may not even know what the technique is right but, exactly but we live in an age now where kids can just go to youtube and find there's probably several high quality videos of people demonstrating yeah. it and that's the beauty of the 21st century it is it's also the the double-edged sword part of that is there are videos on youtube that are not yeah i i i've come across and it really frustrates me it's just like even today that there are there are videos and there's information online that's it's it's either not quite right or it's not quite it doesn't give you the full story or it's flat out wrong and it's really hard to piece through some of that information, but yeah, it's there are some really great videos and, and people online that are offering that information. So definitely. All right. So here's a slightly different kind of question. If say I am a middle school band director who is recruiting kids from elementary school and mm-hmm. I want to sell the kids on playing bassoon, how would I go about okay. doing that? Or what like maybe excerpts or things they can go look up about the bassoon possibly that might get them excited about it, that sort of thing. Yeah, actually, I created a video on my YouTube channel for this very purpose meant to be for band directors to to show to students. So it's called Five Reasons You Should Play Bassoon. It's on my YouTube channel, Building a Bassoonist. And it's a short video. And I go through kind of the reasons that bassoon is awesome and, and kind of the role that bassoon plays in music. And yeah, I definitely I play the, the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice and I talk about how I every time I'm watching a movie and anytime there's this spooky, mysterious 
part or a character is up to no good, there's usually a bassoon playing. So it's like, that's kind of the character that I kind of, I like to say that the bassoon is it's kind of it's it's not necessarily at the forefront but it's definitely there and it's got character and i i try to to show excerpts that are both lyrical in nature and technical because i think some students might look at the bassoon and think you're like what like you can't you can't play fast or technical on that thing and we can yeah there's definitely there's definitely some excerpts out there that we we are working our tails off to to keep up with other woodwinds. So yeah, I think like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the Hall of the Mountain King King is just, that's a good one that they love. Um, trying to think of um, another one. A, a lyrical one would be the bassoon solo from Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, the Versus solo. That's a, that's a nice lyrical, nice one. Yeah, I and and I try to be honest too with students because the bassoon, especially in band, is never we're never the the trumpets or the flutes or the saxophones. We don't off we don't often get solos or even super exposed parts like in middle school in a lot of high school band repertoire. We're often doubling the instruments, and so. I try to make it clear that I, I don't want to sell a student. I don't want to sell them like, oh, the bassoon is, you're always a soloist. You're always a standout. But you have to, you are a unique individual in the, ba- in the band or the ensemble is that you, you ha- you're one of a kind. You may be the only one in your whole school that plays the bassoon. Or you, it may be you and just a, a couple other people in your, in your own little secret club of bassoons. And only you know how to play this weird looking instrument. So I try to be, you know, I want to excite them, but at the same time, I, tr- I try to be really realistic. Like, this is the role that the bassoon plays in, in band music often, but these are some other th- really cool things that it can do in other situations as well. So, yeah. Well, before we get to our final three questions, do you have anything that you feel like that we have missed? We have missed. Hmm. I think I've, I've, I've made sure to cover all of the most important things. Any student can play the bassoon, play on handmade reeds as much as possible. Yeah, there are a lot, there are a lot of resources available out there um, online, as we talked about earlier, that, that make playing the bassoon more accessible than it used to be. And so, again, I think any student can play the bassoon. So I guess that's my, my recap of what I've talked about today. I think I would direct our listeners towards your videos that you have on your website that talk about if you're switching from this specific instrument, here's some considerations when moving to the bassoon or from that instrument. I think you have one for flute, clarinet, saxophone. Yeah. Trumpet Trumpet and trombone. trombone. Yes. So switching people from all those instruments and the certain considerations they have to make. So I would definitely encourage the listeners to go check those out because that's really awesome. I know in a lot of programs, they don't start bassoon. They want to kind of... Mm -hmm handpick and audition the kids they want to play double reads um, right and i did that for a long time i i start now if a kid wants to start in sixth grade now i start in sixth grade now i found switching kids often to be a lot more difficult than just starting them but in a lot of yeah. programs they will not play double reads until year two so i think mm-hmm. those video resources are, are really excellent for people in that situation 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and that's why I made them is because it's, I don't know the percentage, but I would say most bassoonists came from another instrument of some of some sort. I came from the trumpet, actually, which is odd. But yeah, and it it's just every instrument, you have certain strengths that are going to work well in the bassoon and certain things that aren't going to work as well. So yeah, that's why I made those videos to hopefully be a little bit more helpful to guide you along. And we can put links to those in the show notes and on the website, The Flying Baton, so that people can check them out. All right. Well, I think that brings us to our final three questions. Uh, I ask these questions to everybody who comes on the show. So number one, do you have a mentor shout out? Mentor shout out. That definitely has to be the my current teacher, actually, Michael Croth at, at Michigan State. And he's just a fantastic person. I've been studying with him for a number of years and now I'm at the end of my degree and I'm very sad to be leaving this program in the near future and not being able to work with him regularly. But any students that might be considering playing bassoon in college and if they're in high school, Michigan State is a great place to go for bassoon because Michael Groth is just just phenomenal. He's just such a, a awesome human being and I can't can't recommend him enough as a teacher and a human. All right, number two, do you have a favorite beginning band piece? Beginning band. There is this piece I'm probably going to... I did this when I was student teaching. I, this was with eighth graders, actually, so it was a little bit more advanced. It was about... It's it's pretty popular. It's about the volcano crater and or something in Oregon. starts with an M. It's very cool. Have a, ah. a Mazama. Yes, it is Mazama by Jay Chataway. Yes, I really liked that piece. I really, I, it was a challenge for the eighth grade students that I worked with, but they were, they love the piece. It includes, oh, what is that called? The flute thing that's like, has like a couple holes in it, but it's like, I, I should have come more prepared for this. <laughs> I wish that I, yeah. Anyways. It has a lot of percussion, like interesting percussion things in it. It's really cool. Highly recommend it, maybe for a little bit more advanced middle school ensemble or early high school. Mazama by Jay Chataway. I, I really liked it when I when I worked with my band. I thought it was a very cool piece. So there you have it. <laughs> Fabulous. All right, question number three. Name a band director, or possibly in your case, a private teacher, who is crushing it right now. Crushing it right now. I would have to say the the band director that I'm, I nominate is actually the one that I student taught with. Jennifer Kirby teaches at a smaller school, 612 band program in Florence, Montana, which is about 30 minutes south of Missoula, if anybody knows where Missoula is in Montana. But she is fantastic and is just, just has an amazing program and is just one of the most kindest, caring people that I know and really certainly helped to to make me into a better educator when I worked with her. And I know that she's crushing it right now. I haven't talked to her recently, but I, I know that she's she's killing it. She's she's doing awesome. So that's my shout out. I not I nominate Jennifer Kirby in Florence, Montana. She's awesome. Fabulous. Well thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Flying Baton. Remember, may your tone be dark and your humor light.